You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. Everybody has an opinion on Jesus, particularly around political season, everybody has an opinion on on Jesus, but all the time people um, believe that Jesus is a healing guru, they think he's a wise sage, they think that he is... um, a law and order person. He is a human rights activist. He's, he's anything you really want him to be. He can kind of be your mascot, uh, you know, if, if you want to. He's a powerful icon, no matter where you go. Uh, but Jesus says that we don't find him in his identity uh, through uh, observation or opinion. We find him through revelation. Um, this is the passage I want us to be looking at as we truck through this month of March. Um, considering who Jesus is as a, as a prophet and as a priest and as a king, he says in uh, 1125, um, he says this in a prayer, and then he kind of turns and, and speaks about the prayer that he prays. But he says, at that time, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned. But at the same time as you've hidden them from people that should or think that they know who Jesus is, at the same time he's, he's hidden them, he's revealed himself to his children. This is the nature of Jesus is that he, he can't, can't be taught or can't be corralled or coerced and he can't, can't con, you know, compulsively get somebody to think about Jesus the right way, that it has to be a spiritual rebirth and we'd have to have it revealed to us is what he says. And so it's the little children, it's the unwise ones, it's the poor in spirit, it's, it's the, the, the empty ones, the hunger and thirst for righteousness ones that actually come and actually see Jesus who he is. And he says, all these things have been committed to be by my father. No one knows the Son except for the Father, and no one knows the Father except for the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal them. And so we just, we don't know who God is. It says that the world was cloaked in darkness. In John 1, that the Word had to become flesh. It had to move into the neighborhood, into the cul-de-sacs and the streets and the apartments, that the Word had to become flesh. We weren't looking for God. God was looking for us. He had to be here. He had to come here and show us who he is. And so then he says, not that you would just see me and not know me or see me and see me from afar, but... The invitation would be, if we were to see him, that we would come to him. Verse 28, come to me, says Jesus, all who are weary and burdened. He says, I'm going to give you a rest. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so we are looking at uh, this month, uh, Jesus as the prophet and the priest and the king. Um, when I, was, uh, when I was young, I don't know if you ever had a thought like this, but I couldn't wrap my mind around why kids were always so anxious. Excuse me, why adults were always so anxious. Kids were not anxious. Adults were always worried about everything. Um, it was like um, holidays time. Everybody would get on those big turtleneck sweaters in the 90s, and um, it would get itchy in there. You know what I mean? Like 45 minutes till countdown, and Uncle Barry's going to show up, and people are not happy. There are not enough chairs, Michael. I told you to get the chairs, you know. If people are just itchy on Thanksgiving. They're not feeling good. They want to know where the sleeping arrangements are. They're tight. Kids are having a good time. They're out there playing ping pong. Adults, not so much. Tight. Not happy. All the food, all the fun. It's Thanksgiving. We're going to have fun, but I'm tight. And, uh, and for the life of me, I had to, my, had to have my mom break down, you know, like why bankruptcy was such a bad thing. I'd be like, so you're just telling me that basically you get so poor you run out of money and you just tell people you can't pay them back and you're off the hook? I was like, that sounds like a great plan to me. Like, <laughs> I don't understand. She's like, she's trying to break it down to me. Yeah, like they call you on the phone and they keep bothering you. And it's like, 
That sounds like Matt from down the street. He's always calling me down the phone. Like, I, I don't see why this is such an anxious thing. Uh, I've done it. I've gone and done it. I'm now 36, and I'm grown up. I'm, a, I'm one of those people now. I'm just an adult. I worry. I just worry about everything. I'm just worried about, you know, what people think of me. I'm worried about where money's coming from. I'm thinking about church problems. I'm thinking about, you know, home problems. I'm just thinking. I'm just all the problems, and I'm just upset all the time, you know. What happened to me? When you're a kid, you sleep like a baby, you know. When you're an adult, you're up at three. Why is it always three, though, right? At least if it's four, you could go get a good workout and feel like you accomplished something. But it's three, right? Just handicapping for the rest of the day. No sleep. You might as well have just been up reading a book. It's just at three o'clock. It's like the no man zone. And uh, kids, are born, kids are born ready to sleep. They sleep like a baby. That's the saying. But adults grow into restlessness. Always restless. We, we, are, we are without rest. We have a, a, an ache and we crave this rest that we can't find. And it's because we have a past now that predicts on the future. And uh, kids, they have no past. And they have no reason to think that the future is going to be bad because they have no bad experiences, a lot of them in the past. But as we grow up, we find out that the world uh, does not offer us rest. You've got to go and figure that out on your own. You've got to make sure the table's set the right way and the guests are all invited and that the sweaters are not shrunk in the, in, the, in the dryer and so forth. You have to make sure that you go and find your own rest and make your own rest. Kids have no past. They think that rest just shows up on their doorstep. And they sleep like babies because of it. And even if something goes wrong, then you can just get some ice cream and everything goes away and it feels better. I was on a vacation this last summer. Uh, and uh, some of you guys' blood pressure is just going to go up just from this story. I know it. Because you've got enough problems, so I'm just going to bear my burdens on you too. So last summer, uh, it was around like, I think July, we scheduled our week vacation. We're going to go to North Carolina. And uh, we got the news, you know, on whatever it was. CNN or whatever, that there's a tornado coming for North Carolina. And so I'm just, hurricane, hurricane, the blood of Jesus, Lord, I just pray right now that you just move heaven and earth. I cannot, this is COVID, I cannot miss this vacation. I'm tight. I got to get this vacation in. Everything's set up. This is like a teacher. You guys are educators. Teachers don't just get vacations. You have to go earn them. You work really hard before the vacation to like get ahead of it. Then you take the week off, and hopefully that doesn't just fall apart. And then after the vacation, you got to work really hard to catch up. So that's what's going on in ministry, right? So it's like Tom is back here. He's ready to preach. He preached a fire sermon. I was not supposed to be there. I had to be there on that Sunday because this hurricane comes and washes through this island in North Carolina, this little like thing. And uh, there's floods everywhere, and there's streets of like four foot deep of water. I'm like, Kyra, we should just go, just just swim in the in the thing, you know? And then they put the bridge up, and they said we couldn't go. So now. I'm working on the, on the week that I'm supposed to be resting, and now, on the week that I'm supposed to be resting, guess what I'm doing? I'm answering phone calls. Like, I've I'm I'm got a sermon on Sunday. I'm, like, halfway there. The kids are getting, like, homeschool. They're, they're getting their books together and all this stuff. Now, I kid you not, this is, I'm just not kidding. Some of you guys might know about this little thing that happened to me. I set up one of these vacation reminders uh, just to let everybody know that I'm on vacation. You know, it's like, hey, I'm on vacation. Can't answer your emails. Put it on my phone. Don't know why. iPhone can just do everything. It can you know, tell me what my fingerprint is, but can't set a vacation reminder on the text message. And so uh, I set it up with Gmail. Hey, this is Oliver. Thanks for emailing me. I'll get back with you on July, whatever. I'm on vacation. Thanks so much. And don't worry about it if you don't hear back from me kind of thing. It was going to be great. It's going to be my message to the world that I'm on vacation. It's a week later, but, you know, better late than never. I wake up this morning, guys, and I talked to the lady in India for a long time. I've got no solution. I know you're going to text me like you think you know there was no solution. I woke up, 
And this vacation reminder, listen closely, it went to every person that I emailed from the year 2019 to 2020, CC, BCC, incoming and outcoming. I'm talking 2,000 emails. Stephen Lewis, the elder at the church, he's on all these CC emails. He woke up and he's like, bro, why did I get 75 emails from you saying you're like on vacation? And I was like, I was like, but here's the thing, I'm not really on vacation. It's like, I'm the vacation guy, not getting the vacation, man. It's fragile, it's fickle, and I'm tight. It's not good. Rest, rest as you grow up is harder to come by, come by. We grow into the years. We gain a past that projects the future, and we grow into restlessness. We grow into worrying about many things. And Jesus says, no matter how hard we, we run from stress and anxiety and try and dig our head in the sand and go out to Jamaica sandals, we're going to come home from those kids, hanging out from just the kids. You're exhausted from the vacation. You need a vacation. No matter how hard you work to get your house and your lawn manicured and primped, it just takes one bad day or one kid to run through it and mess it up. He's like, rest, rest is something that is hard to come by. We are given into restlessness, a craving for rest, and there's a restlessness among us because we can't make our rest. We have to receive it. We can't make our own rest. We can't find our own rest. We can't isolate into our own rest. We can't build our own rest. We're, we're, in, we're, we're fickle in our abilities or we're unable and incapacitated to create our own rest. This is what Jesus says, that rest is found this way. Come to me, all you are weary and burdened. And he says what? I'm going to give it to you. Rest can't be taken. It has to be given. Take my yoke upon you because you're not going to find it in Jamaica. You're not going to find it in, um, in the perfect Chip and Joanna house. It's not there. People will go after it to go and find rest. It's a promise for rest that can never deliver. The only place you will find your rest is in me. Your rest ultimately won't come from your calendar because your calendar can't create rest. The calendar didn't create the Sabbath. And, you know, the Sabbath doesn't exist for calendars. You know, calendars, maybe they point to the Sabbath, but calendars don't create Sabbath. Jesus creates the Sabbath. And rest is not ultimately something that is derived out of our activities, but it's derived out of our priests. It's out of Jesus. And so he says, come to me, all you are weary and burdened, and you will find what no one else can find any other place but me, and you will find your rest. Rest is not the absence of work. Rest is nearness to Jesus, is, is what the biblical standard says. So Jesus is a greater prophet. He speaks a better word than Abel. He's a greater king because he's a servant king. He's a suffering servant. He came to die for his enemies. And he's a greater priest because he offers us rest. And this is what he says, uh, in, in, or this is what the scripture says in Matthew chapter 12, if you want to go there. In this little segment here between 11 and 12, Jesus gets done healing no less than nine people. He preaches the Sermon on the Mount. And in 11 and 12, there's reaction videos, like on YouTube. They all have a word about who they think Jesus is. Some think that he's a demon, and some think that he's a glutton, and some think that he's a, he's a prophet. But none of them get it unless the Father reveals it. And so he comes into this situation. He's in the grain field. And uh, it says, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And it says, his disciples were hungry. He began to pick some heads of grain, and he eats them. And when the Pharisees see this, they say to him, look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. So if we did a little book review, a case study of, of uh, 
Jewish law, he actually is not breaking any of the laws. Everybody say Malachot. Malachot. Malachot is the name of the Jewish um, kind of human codes that the Pharisees made to fence off uh, the law of, uh, of the Sabbath and every other law for that matter. It's almost like at the Grand Canyon because, because the, the penalty of breaking the law would be death. The Grand Canyon, you know, you wouldn't just have a fence at the edge. You'd have it maybe 10 feet in. So you'd want to fence it off. But the Pharisees put it 10 feet in from 10 feet in and 10 feet in from 10 feet in. And so what was meant to become a fence for protection became a cage of, of a prison. And there were actually 39 categories you'll see on the screen of things that you couldn't do on the Sabbath. And I believe they're still in order in, in different sects of uh, Judaism today. But it's anything from carrying to burning, extinguishing, finishing, writing, erasing, cooking, washing, sewing, tearing, knotting, untying. I bet you, you better have your shoes tied. Uh, shaping, plowing, planting, reaping, harvesting, threshing, winnowing. Harvesting is probably the one they got Jesus on that day. Selecting, sifting, grinding, kneading, combing. Better get a hairdryer. I don't know what you're going to do with that. Spinning, dyeing, chain stitching, warping, weaving, unraveling, building, demolishing, trapping, shearing, slaughtering, skinning, tanning, smoothing, and, and marking. Jesus broke no God law, only broke man's law. So they confront him on the Sabbath, and they say he's broken the law, though he's broken no law. And the irony here, actually, is the wink and the nod of this passage, is Jesus walking through the grain field is not only not violating the Sabbath, he's actually fulfilling the Sabbath. So the law in Deuteronomy 23 uh, speaks to Jesus' situation in this way, verse 24, if you enter your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat all the grapes you want. This was the Jewish system, like the Jewish family and nation was about neighboring. And not only that, it was about aliens and immigrants, so the Sabbath law, and really the gardening philosophy in general, was that God gives more than you need. So you work, and out of that abundance and overflow, not only will you have enough for yourself, six days of work will, will, will pour into the seventh, you'll have enough for your neighbor, and don't you forget you were an immigrant too, and you were oppressed, and you were downcast, and when the immigrants come into your fields, may they have enough as well, because God's more than enough. So this is the celebration of what, of what the, the Sabbath and really all the trees and the seed-bearing fruits and plants that it was in Genesis 2. This is the echo of that within the law of God. It was completely being acted upon and fulfilled in Jesus, Jesus walking in his little stroll in, in the garden or in the, in the grain field, rather, with his disciples. The disciples are eating what they didn't plant. What is more Sabbath than that is what Jesus might say. They're picking heads of grain from their neighbor that was sown for the justice for the nations. And they're enjoying the fruit they didn't plant. What is more Genesis 2 than that? Not only is he not violating the Sabbath, he's fulfilling the Sabbath. He is fulfilling the heart of the Sabbath uh, law, which is that God set apart a day that was holy, that said everything's complete. Sabbath is not a vacation, it's a completion. And it's, the, it's, it's heaven resting on earth, providing more than enough for his people, for his children, for his Adam and Eve's, his, his image bearers. So this is, this is the passage. I'll read it to you. God says, this is Genesis 1. So when you think about it was completed and he rested from his work, you have to ask, what did he bless? What was the creation that was complete? Remember, on day five, it was not, not complete yet because man wasn't created, right? And so after day six happens, this is what's pronounced. Essentially, when, when God rests back into his throne and says that everything is complete within the Sabbath and calls it holy, this is what he's talking about. Genesis 1. He says, I give Adam and Eve, I give the little children and the Noras and the little Olivers, you know, all the children. These, this is what I give them for free. Watch all the gives. I give them 
every seed-bearing plant and on the face of the earth, every tree that has fruit and seed in it. God's not creating a, a scarcity project. He has a generosity project. That's what the Garden of Eden is about. There's too much to use, and I give it to you. And because you know that you don't make it, I make it. I want you to invite you into the Sabbath that I'm creating, this rest here, because I've made too much. And there's nothing to take and only to give at this place because this is what Sabbath and garden is all about. It's about giving and not taking, and it's about receiving. This is what the heart of the Sabbath is about. And he says, this is all yours, and you didn't make it, and you didn't plan it, you didn't work for it, and you don't need to do 70 hours and 80 hours. And you need to worry about it and set up a vacation reminder about it. You don't need to worry about North Carolina or, or Jamaica or whatever because all of the earth is mine, and I give it to you because I'm a giver, not a taker. And so come enjoy my rest. Come eat what you didn't plant. This is what the disciples are doing in this garden, or in this, in this grain field that's being made a garden by Jesus. This is all yours, he says. He says, I give you the green plants for food and all the beasts you'll rule over. In verse 31, God saw all that he had made, and he said, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, and the sixth day, and by the seventh day, he had finished work. He had been doing so that on the seventh day, he rested, not because he's tired, because he's holy, and because he's done. And so when we uh, close up our MacBooks and uncharge our computers or we, you know, put, put, the, put the, uh, our work away for Friday, sometimes the work's not done and there's a restlessness in us. In us. And, and what God is saying in this passage, even for Christians today, is he's saying you're not resting because you're done, you're resting because I'm done. The Sabbath is the pronouncement that he is more than enough and has more than enough and he is finished in his work. And we are enjoying things that we don't plant. And so Jesus was not only not violating he was fulfilling the Sabbath. He made the grain field into the garden. And so every seven days, the Jews were supposed to take a day of ceasing. And even today, you'll go into the market there in Jerusalem and other places, and there's just a call out that the Sabbath is going to begin at sundown, and they're hustling, man. They're working hard to enter the rest. They are, they're gathering all the food, and they're washing all the clothes, and they're trying to do everything that they can so they don't have to do any work on that day to celebrate that God is more than enough and has more than enough for them. He provided manna in the wilderness. He had them collect for six days and not on the seventh. And then even beyond that, throughout the year, there's seven cycles of feasts, and each of these feasts were to remind them of the different places that God had provided for them, both spiritually and emotionally and physically and all these things. It was cycle of seven. And then every seven years, even every seven years, on that seventh year, imagine this. This makes me want to become Jewish. You just take the whole year off, right? No work. No work allowed. Let the land rest. As a matter of fact, in Deuteronomy, where the law is pronounced, it says, release the land. Because the land has become a prisoner to you underneath the curse that you caused. And the land is being cursed like you're being cursed. And you release it to me, and watch if I don't produce, absent of your work, only my work included, watch if I don't produce more fruit than you can for you, your neighbor, and for, your, for the enemy, and for the, and for the, uh, for the um, immigrant. Watch how I don't have enough for you. On the seven times 77, or seven times seven years, on the 50th year, there was a whole year called the year of Jubilee. And that's not only when the release of, of the land is, where you take the whole year off, but you release all the debts. Over the 49 years, there's, there's, a, there's a defilement in the land. That's what the priests talk about when they sprinkle the blood. They cut the, the animal for the atonement of sins, but they sprinkle the land for the defilement of the land because the land has been held captive Underneath man's control, and man is sinful, and so the land is cursed. And so it's, it's a release of the land, but it's also a release of prisoners. It's a release of slaves. Over the years, if you caught a bad crop, if you caught 
a bad injury, if something was wrong, if there was like a bull weevil or, you know, some type of a pestilence that would come in, a locust, you would get behind. and You'd be behind in debt. And those things would add upon, add upon, add on generations of debt incurred. And on that year of Jubilee, all those debts are cleared. This is what the Sabbath is about. So Jesus is not violating the Sabbath. He's fulfilling it. He has come to bring the Sabbath. So verse 3, they challenge him on it. And uh, I love this is what Jesus is, is always saying. Um, hey, Bible teachers, he says, this is it. In, uh, let me find where the verse is. Well, I think I lost it. But something along the lines of, um, hey, Bible teachers, you want to talk about the law of the Sabbath? <clears throat> have you read your Bible? This is what he says to him. He's like, hey, Michael Jordan, have you ever heard of a basketball before? Let's have a little Bible study. Oh, it is on the screen. Yeah. Uh, have you not read? Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And those that were with him, the priests that were there in the field, did you not read that he entered into the house of God and <clears throat> he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful to do, but only for the priests? Did you not read this kind of like contradiction in terms of the law where the letter and the spirit of the law sort of didn't line up? David was running for his life from Saul. He was anointed king, and he was supposed to be king uh, both by the popularity of the people but also by the anointing of God, and he was running for his life from Saul. Not unlike the Pharisees are chasing Jesus and pursuing him in this very field. I think there's kind of a wink and a nod there. And he said, when he goes into the, to the, to the, uh, to the priest, Ahimelech is the name of this guy, <clears throat> did Ahimelech keep him from eating the bread, or did he eat the bread uh, as he needed? Well, if they went back in 1 Samuel 21 and 22... The priests actually were killed for their actions by Saul uh, as martyrs, I guess, to the faith in a sense of following the anointing of God and feeding King David as he was being chased uh, by Saul all the way across uh, the wilderness. And so he says, well, that wasn't, would you call that a, a, a contradiction to the law? I mean, they can't because, of course, everyone knows that David was the anointed one of God and everyone knows that David was provided for even if it was by the showbread, the Jewish bread that was set out, 12 loaves every seven days. He said, huh, that's funny. Do you read the law that way? Do you see the Sabbath as a mercy? Or do you see it as a sacrifice? He builds on the theme again. He says, uh, or do you remember when uh, you read about the law of the priests there in Numbers 28, that the Sabbath duty in the temple uh, is to keep working on the Sabbath? Didn't you ever think about the fact that the priests continue to work, toiling, it's a lot of work to be a, to be a priest, to, to get the animals together and gather them and, you know, get the menorahs together and get the, the bread and all the, all the sacraments and all these types of things. I mean, that's a lot of work. Did you ever think about the fact that they're working on the Sabbath? Isn't that desecrating the Sabbath? He says, the problem is I don't think you understand what the Sabbath is. He says, I tell you that someone greater than the temple is here. If you went into one of the temples, this was now David's son Solomon built the temple, and inside the temple there was all this artistry of the garden. Did you know that? Inside of the temple was pictures of trees and fruit and, and water and rivers, just like Eden. It was a picture of Eden on earth. That's what the temple was for. It was not for uh, God or man to try and give sacraments to get up to God. It was the promise that God had come in his mercy to come down to God or to, to, to earth and meet with man, and that people would... would commune with God through the temple system. This is what the whole temple system was supposed to be about. And he goes, I'm telling you the truth that there's something better than the temple in front of you. He's saying that the temple was a bridgeway from Eden to a future promise of somebody that would represent the temple. He says, I'm, I'm the temple. I'm the one with the hands and the feet that walk around. I am the Garden of Eden walking around. I'm the presence of God. I'm the kingdom of heaven that's come to dwell with you. I am the temple is what he's saying. He's saying, uh, there's something greater than the temple. And so not only... Am I a greater Bible student than you and a greater teacher? 
I'm greater than the temple and I'm greater than the law. And not only do I carry the Sabbath, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. I'm over the Sabbath is what Jesus is going to say. And if you knew what the Sabbath was and if you knew what the law was, you'd know me. And you would know that every law and every temple and every priest abide by this code. Read it and see if you see the Sabbath this way. Verse 7, if you had known what these words mean, he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you wouldn't have condemned the innocent. If you knew that the Sabbath was not for demanding burdens and debts on people, but releasing them. If you knew that the Sabbath wasn't from keeping the children, but from drawing them, that the children would be fed by things that they didn't plant and live out of the abundance of the garden. If you knew what the Sabbath was about, you wouldn't have missed the Sabbath right in front of you, but you've, you've put your laws and fences around God's heart and law rather than seeing my law, which is to come to me and to come to Jesus. And because of that, you have mistaken the entire purpose of the law and the Sabbath, which is included in that, to be about uh, uh, sacrifice and not mercy. I was in uh, Haywood Mall, of all places, this last weekend, um, getting my, my dear uh, daughter uh, an iPhone case. Uh, and uh, so we were in the mall, and there's still people in there. It's full of people. It's clamoring and hopping, and nobody's wearing their mask. Somebody called it a super spreader event. I don't know what I call it, but it was a lot of people, and I was surprised that they're there. And so it's that one little corner. I don't know if you guys go to the mall anymore. A lot of the shops got closed down, but our favorite spot in the mall, you know the trifecta is the Apple store is right there. And the Pottery Barn's right there in Forever 21. If I'm going to go in the mall, I and mean, I'm saying at the mall, that's where you're going to find me nine times out of ten. I'm not going to the Gap and, you know, go Amazon or something instead of that. But so that's the little corner. And, uh, and each one of those um, shops, you know, I was thinking about it. And I think about this stuff probably too much because I'm a preacher. And that's, I guess, what, it, what, what, I'm, what my mind is wrapped around. But each one of the shops, you know, they're all different versions of Matthew 11 in the sense that they all promise a different kind of rest a different kind of Sabbath. When you, when you walk into the pottery barn, there is a Sabbath they're promising. They're saying, come to me, all you who, you know, grew up in apartments and all of you that maybe were immigrants and didn't have a great background and all you that, um, you know, are coming out of your 20s and you're sick of Ikea or whatever it is and come and get some real furniture. And also, I'm not, just gonna, I'm not just selling you the furniture. Like, I want to sell you the whole set, and I want to sell you the image. Like, it's not just a warehouse. There's, like, pictures of all these hearths and Christmas, this and that. And it's a promise. It's saying, come and buy three times as much expensive furniture, and I will give you your rest that you're looking for. Don't have to go anywhere else. It's right here, babe. Just, like, right over here. You go into the Apple store, it's a whole other temple. And it's pictures of, like, very diverse colors of, of people. Like, it's not just the kind of white American picture, right? It's like all the different races are there. And, and everybody's 25 and successful. And, um, and when you go up there, like, there's almost like these, like, barcode identities that you have to know your I, Apple ID and your password. And it's almost like checking into, like, some Steven Spielberg future movie. And people buy into that. Like, you feel shamed if your iPhone screen's cracked. You're like, I'm sorry, sir, I broke your phone that I spent $1,000 for. Like, will you please forgive me? And they, yes, I'll pay $900 for you to fix the screen that I paid $1,000 for. And I'm ashamed of ever even bringing this in front of you. That it's an iPhone 7, it's not an iPhone 7S. I'm so sorry. These are temples, guys. And they are promising us, right? You're not just in a warehouse. You're in a vision. You're in a place that's promising you a rest. And it's not the old bigoted, 
southern thing that you grew up with, and it's not the old racist thing. It's this new, progressive space where anything's possible, and creativity is, is the goal. You go over to Forever 21, you're just bopping. Doom, doom, bop, bop, bop. Listen to some song that I shouldn't even know, you know, of what this song is. I don't even know what it is. I can't even, you know. And, uh, and the clothing section, you're not sure, you know, like, where the guys and girls section begins in some cases. I get kind of confused. I don't really fit in anymore. I'm not for every, for every 38 now. <laughs> Faux fashion, cheap fashion, quick fashion, in and out. And, you know, it's that vision, I guess, of just of, of being a rock star. And you know what I mean? And just being fancy and footloose and fancy free because that's where the rest is. You know, you don't have to commit and be tied down. Just buy a shirt. You don't want it. Throw away. Buy another one. Like, there's a vision. There's a Sabbath that's being presented because we all crave Sabbath. When we're trying to go on vacation and we're on our Instagram and we're drawn towards an ad, they're not just selling you the thing. They're selling you Sabbath because we ache and crave Sabbath and can't find it. And we buy this stuff and we come home and as soon as we get in our hand, it fails to deliver the promise. Because no, no, no other priest can bring the Sabbath. All of those spaces are temples and they are demanding something from you. And they're demanding you repent of your old traditional ways or you repent of your, you know, your closed-mindedness or you repent of your poverty or you repent and you turn and you bring this offering. And it's more than just the money. It's the lifestyle. It's like, I'm going to have this super slick phone and I'm going to get a new one every year and I'm going to have, you know, the leather case that goes on it and the cool thing that like magnetizes it and I'm just going to have the whole thing because it's this whole Sabbath and Jesus is saying, watch out, it's not going to give it to you. It's why we spend the money for it. It's why it's worth way more than we, you know, why we pay way more than it's worth. It's because it's promising us more than product. It's promising us Sabbath that it can't, can't offer it. And I just get this picture like Jesus would stand up and he'd say, come to me, all you are weary. You walk around in that mall, people are tired, man. And they've worked for just days and days and maybe they just get a minute to get their family out and stop fighting in the living room or whatever. And they park all the way in the back of the thing. They march like all the way in there in that little temple to go find that Eden, to go find a little bit of rest, to go find a little relief. $5 Orange Julius, $10 Starbucks, $20 $20 Forever 21, $5,000 Pottery Barn. What rest do you want? What do, where do you want? Come, come to me, all you are weary, come. And I just see Jesus, he's saying, no, don't go to, don't go to, these, don't go to these priests. He says, he's saying, come to me, I'm the only one that will give you rest. Listen, this is, the, this is the problem with the Pharisee. The problem with the Pharisee is that the Pharisee preaches and believes that in order to have mercy, you need to bring a sacrifice. But Jesus is preaching to us that in order to have mercy, he is the sacrifice. He says, all of these people, when you get up to the front of their line at the temple, they're going to ask you for your wallet. And they're going to demand a sacrifice. They're going to demand that you give a pound of flesh. They're going to demand that you give your work's worth of wages and you're going to, you're going to run the machine and you're going to work more bricks and less straw, that you're going, to, you're going to serve and obey Pharaoh and not serve and obey God. You're never going to take the Sabbath. You're going to never take the time off. You're going to work and work and work and then you're going to bring that money to that counter and they're going to demand it from you. And promise you mercy. And he says, I'm the only one that gives mercy. I don't take it. And I came to tell you, I don't demand mercy. Or I don't demand a sacrifice. I am the sacrifice. I'm the only one. I'm the only priest. Then instead of demanding the sacrifice, I am. And I give the sacrifice that you could have it free. Come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden. And I 
will give you rest, a Sabbath rest. It's not about relaxation, a good book, and a warm bath. It's not about a long walk on the beach. It's not about a nice wine. It's not about another vacation. It's none of those things. It's a long walk with Jesus in the field. That's his rest. That is his Sabbath rest. And I'm in Aldi the other day, man, and I love Aldi. It's like maybe I even like it more than the mall. But there's people in there, man, and they're hurting too. And there's this burden, you know, and, and you see people like, it's like Jesus says he, he, he saw people, there, he has compassion on them because they're like sheep without a shepherd. This is the way that Jesus sees things as a priest. And I just, and I see people, you know, you see them too out and about and they've got four kids and they're working hard and like, you know, they're, they're probably trying to save money because they're an Aldi and they got this stupid quarter in the rack to try and like push their cart around. They don't even have bags and they're falling on all that stuff. And it just made me think, like, if one of these people were to show up to a church, will we demand a sacrifice or will we offer mercy? Because here's the thing, like, it doesn't really matter. Pharaoh and Pharisees, they work for the same guy. Pharaoh and Pharisees, they work for the same guy because both of them kill babies. They drown babies. You understand? He says that these people are sheep without a shepherd. They're children. And the, and the, and the Pharaohs, they drown babies before they grow up in the Nile. And and in abortion clinics, and on the internet, and in pornography, and in their social circles, and in their colleges, and in their workplaces, that they continue to kill babies. That's the mission of Pharaoh, right? And the mission of the Pharisees is the same thing. He says you, you, you heap heavy burdens on people, heavy burdens on people that you wouldn't even lift. And he says your fate is worse than tying a millstone around your neck because anybody that gets in the way of putting a burden in between my child and me is worth a curse, is what he says. This is what he's saying. And, he, and, and so he's saying, I'm the only priest. I'm the only one that you can come to that can offer you rest because I don't demand the sacrifice. He says, I am the sacrifice. And so every priest demands a sacrifice. Every priest other than Jesus demands that we give him something. Hebrews 10 would tell us that day after day, priests in the church and priests out of the church. Priests are just people that represent God to man and man to God. They're intermediators and they're people that promise rest. And anybody that's promising a rest um, is trying to stand in that place to be a priest. And day after day, it says, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. All of the, even the sacrifices that were offered in the Levitical code were nev never meant to establish rest and forgiveness. They could only point to it. And they pointed to that temple that even when the Pharisees were standing in front of Jesus, they couldn't see it. And day after day, the, the priests, they offer these sacrifices and they can't forgive sins. And verse 12 says, But when the priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made a footstool for one sacrifice he has made. He has made perfect forever, making anyone who received it holy. The Holy Spirit testifies to us. And first he says, This is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my law on their hearts. I will write them on their minds, and then he adds, and their sins and lawless acts will be removed and no more. And uh, where these have been forgiven, sacrifices for sins are no longer necessary. In other words, that the Sabbath has come to rest in Jesus. He's the only priest that can offer us rest because he has become the sacrifice, so we get the mercy. In the, in the other priesthood, it's bring the sacrifice to get the mercy. Jesus says, I will be the sacrifice so that you can get the mercy and so that the children can receive uh, the grain and the fruit again. This is what Jesus promises. For the Son of Man, this is back to Matthew 11, verse 8. The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. So then he takes them on a little field trip, and he says, let me show you a sermon illustration. 
because teaching is one thing, but a story is another thing. Theory is one thing, a testimony is another thing. And he says, going from that place, he went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. And looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus, they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So now he's really driving home the point. I mean, what is the purpose of the Sabbath? Is it so that man can bring sacrifices to God or so that God can give mercy to man? This is the question. This is the crux of the debate that is ensuing here between the Pharisees, the teacher of the law, and the capital T teacher in Jesus. And they are debating over this thing. And he says, what is the Sabbath really here for? Is it for ceasing from work or healing hands? Which one is it? So he says, if any of you has a, has a sheep, and he's counting out their He's counting out their hypocrisy right in front of them because people would go and get sheep out, out of the ditch, but they're not helping people, their neighbor across the street. He says, if one of these sheep falls in a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. This is what the vision of the Sabbath is, is that, God tried to, or that man was trying to get to God by demanding sacrifices, but all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, God has come down to man in his mercy. Whether it was Adam being covered in his skins or Noah being provided for a boat or being covered after his son you know, saw him, whether it was um, David being fed by the showbread, whether it was you know, uh, Moses being rescued up out of, out of the river. All of these things were mercy. They were never about sacrifice. They were always about mercy. God had always provided the sacrifice so that man could get the mercy for free, to have fruit that they never planted for. He says, what is the Sabbath for, Sabbath for in the end anyways? Verse 13, then he says to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched his hand out. He says it was completely restored. He says his hand, it was shriveled. It's a picture of what it means to be a prisoner of the evil above and inside and around you. It's a hand that is restless and needing rest, that goes to spas and massages and clothing lines and and Instagram and work and perfectionism and legalism and religion and rebellion and tries to find healing and can't find healing anywhere because every other priest just demands and can't offer rest. He says, that shriveled hand, he says, it's restored in my sight because I touched it because I am the Sabbath. Verse 14, and when the Pharisees saw this, they plotted out how they might kill Jesus. This is the sermon illustration that Jesus offers us. The shriveled hand that's made healed, that's the Sabbath. That's it. The anxiety and the angst and the tension we feel around the holidays and the sleepless nights, we won't find the answer to it in the mall and we won't find it on Amazon and we won't find it anywhere else. We can only find it in Jesus. That is the only place where our shriveled life can get rested. It's the only place that we can find it. We don't need a better calendar or a better guru or a better even rhythm of life. We need a priest. And this is who Jesus is. He's the better priest. He's the priest in the order of Melchizedek who prays the right prayers and the prayers that work. And he continues to pray for you and I. He intercedes on our behalf. And so that we could enter in, we do not uh, uh, fail in laboring for the rest that he has provided for us. And so this is what rest is. When we think about this, you know, rest is kind of in vogue now, right? Because it's like we've been talking about mindfulness and, uh, you know, these kind of ways to get out of the machinery of capitalism or whatever it is that, you know, our generation is going for. And I hate to tell you, Jesus is telling us that's not going to give us rest. Meditation is not going to give us rest. It just won't. And, and he, you know, it's like he's saying that, he's saying that the Sabbath day is only the Sabbath because it's complete and because Jesus is at the center and because the nations are drawn and because children are being fed. And so when you think, for example, of your perfect vacation, you know, the, the anxiety-free zone that represents rest. Like if I said to you today, you're on 11 out of 10 in anxiety, where are you going to go to go find your rest? And you might be like, I'm going to the library. Some of you guys might be like, 
I'm going to go, you know, walk my dog, or I'm going to go and um, go drink. I mean, if you're honest with yourself, right? I'm going to go online. I'm going to get on my phone. If I have a, a pang of anxiety, this is where I'm going to go. He's going, there's no rest. There's not rest there. There's not rest there. And, and, and so, you know, do we, do we, um, do we uh, practice the Sabbath? The answer is yes. You know, I think about it this way, like, people say, well, Christians are not under the Sabbath, and we're not under the Sabbath, but we do practice the Sabbath just because we're not under the law to not kill people. I hope we're not going out to kill people, right? And just because we're not under the law to not commit, a, you know, adultery, uh, I hope that doesn't mean that we are just going to go sleep around. Um, and so rest, in, in and of itself, um, does need to be practiced. And so I think there's almost two different sides of this thing. There's the side of it that tries to practice rest just by meditation and walks and and all the types of things that uh, the world promises us will give us rest. And then there's people over here that just say, well, rest is something that's biblical and theological and, and, and ethereal and doesn't actually need to be practiced. And somewhere in the middle, it seems that Jesus in the yoke, by saying I'm the way, the truth, and the life, is saying that it is a principle, but it's also a practice. And so he's saying, you know, I would, I would argue this, this question, if Sabbath is all about the practice of declaring to yourself and to God that... Um, that fruit doesn't come from my work and comes from his work, then the question becomes, when is it and where is it that we demand of ourselves and to others that God doesn't give fruit into the field he does? Where is it that we stop our work to declare that the world doesn't revolve around our work, it revolves around his work? Where is that place? And so I think there's two different things that go on in our current generation. It's this aching and craving for rest, which is really just vacation and gluttony. I had a, I had a kid one time at a church... That I was working at, and uh, he's a he's a young guy who's on staff, and um, uh, there was there was an, an older guy, and uh, the older guy comes up to him, and says, "Hey, like, can you help me out? I got to set up this baptismal. It'll take about five minutes." And this kid gets on his phone, and he looks at it, and he goes, "Ooh, you know what? From two to two thirty, I actually have reading and rest scheduled right now, so I like can't really like help you out right now." And I was just so frustrated. Yeah, I didn't. I mean, it wasn't the time or the space, but rest is not an escape. And, and, and seeking out rest by trying to run away from problems, that is not what the Sabbath is. Sabbath is not relaxing necessarily or just working. It's yoking. It's yoking with Jesus and being near to him and following him. And what made the Sabbath out of that grain field was the fact that the people were following him into it. Jesus makes the Sabbath, not our vacation or our block schedule or our meditation or whatever. It's like following Jesus and nearness to Jesus is the Sabbath. But the other side is good preaching that just tells you, look, the Sabbath is a theological position. And because we're in Jesus, we're in Christ, we have rest. But as much as you think about that practice and, and meditate on that practice, we're human beings, not just human doings. We're you know, souls with a body. And if nothing in our calendar ever suggests that we believe that his work is finished until our work is finished, then we don't practice the Sabbath there either. And so in both cases, this is, this is a thought that I have for you, is uh, I want you to really think about this with your spouse or by yourself is to think about taking, in this next month, a Sabbath challenge. And that is, on some Saturday night, or maybe if it's Friday, if you're really busy at church, on Friday night, hustle and bustle, get to Publix, get everything that you need, pre-cook all the meals, get all the laundry done, get everything set up, and do nothing but board games the next day. Nothing but reading poetry, nothing but laughing with your friends, nothing but sharing a good meal and reading the scriptures and worshiping and forgiving and being restored. Because if there's no point in our life that, that represents that, that shows and not only tells about the restfulness of Jesus, I don't know if we can believe it without practicing it. 
And so, and here's the other thing. You've got to put your phone away. Yeah, that's the other one. You've got to put the phone away. And even the first couple times, it says in Hebrews, I'll read it in a moment, that there is a labor to enter into rest. Like it's actually difficult work to get out from under the Pharaoh and out from under the Pharisee and come into the trust that when Jesus says his work is finished, that it's actually done. And so it's putting that phone away and putting it on silent and saying, look, the world's going to go on without me. And if you have to call me on Saturday, you can call me on Sunday too. That's fine. You know? And so putting the phone away, and you might be anxious and you might feel your skin crawl for a little bit, but after a while, I love the way that John Mark Comer says it, and Graham was nailing me this week because I read the, uh, the uh, what is it, relentless, ruthless elimination of hurry on Times 3 and, and audible.com, by the way. I read a book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry in Times 3, but he says that after about 12 o'clock, your soul catches up with your body, and that's where the Sabbath happens, in Jesus' name. And so the invitation would be, whatever that is, in your daily and weekly monthly rhythms of rest, in your daily, weekly, monthly rhythms of your calendar, where are you proclaiming? that his work is what makes it finished and not yours? And where are you proclaiming that, um, that, the, that the Sabbath is not made for demanding sacrifices but for offering mercy so that the children can be fed? Sabbath is for children. Sabbath is for the children that can live by the tree, that can walk by the tree day and night. Sabbath is for following Jesus in the grain fields. There's no fancy meals in, 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 in Matthew chapter 11. There's no um, new shoes. There's no vacation resort. There's no Jamaica. There's just Jesus in the grain field, and that's the Sabbath. That's what the Sabbath is. Hebrews 4 says, For if Joshua has given, him, given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their work, just as God did from, uh, from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following the example of disobedience. They never took the year of Jubilee. That thing I talked to you about earlier, the whole thing where they let the land settle and they let the release of the prisoners and the debts, they never did it because they didn't believe that God was enough and they didn't believe that his work was finished even when theirs wasn't. They never practiced the Sabbath and so they never rested and because of that disobedience, they never entered the rest that Jesus provided for. So here's a couple questions you might take on your phone, and I included Bible passages today that you might talk about in your city group as you uh, process what Jesus as a greater priest would be. Every priest promises rest but can't give it. Priests can only offer religion, but Jesus offers rest. And he says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you a yoke. I'm not giving you a vacation. I'm not giving you a spa. I'm giving you a yoke. It's a way. And that yoke is going to include giving to the poor and selling everything and praying for the sick and, and, and reading the scriptures, it's not a promise for chicken soup for the Christian soul. That's not what come to me all you are heavy laden is about. It's about come and follow the yoke of Jesus and practice what Jesus was about and walk with Jesus because Jesus is the only chance we have in this life of walking and rest. So a couple questions. When you think about that postcard, if you were to send yourself a postcard of yourself in a bubble bath with a book, I'm just going to ask you, where's Jesus in that? Where are the nations? Where's his family? And where is his fruit? Like rest is not the vacation. That rest will not ultimately quench. We need to think about Matthew 11 rest, which is Jesus in the grain field versus what American rest is, which is a trip to Disney World or whatever. Like there's two different things. What is rest? What is rest? Sabbath, right? Sabbath, our rest, our vision for rest is different from Jesus. And we will find no rest in our version. We only find it in his. He's the only priest that offers it. Number two, actually sub point one. Do you see the scripture desiring mercy or sacrifice? When we through Cain and Abel and Adam and so forth, there are sacrifices made, but it's the order, the order of operations. Did the sacrifice come first or the mercy? Is the sacrifice a, a because or is it a for? Is it an if? 
And so he's saying that, that the whole entire scriptures, all the law point to Jesus, and all of Jesus points to this, that he is the sacrifice so that we get the mercy. Not that we bring the sacrifice so that we get the mercy. When you read the scriptures, do you see it drenched in mercy or in sacrifice? Point two, how has rebellion or religion caused you restlessness in you? In two different ways that we talked about today of running away from responsibility or running into religion and making everything perfect are two ways that I think that humans like me and like you try and create their own rest outside of Jesus. And number three, what is the effort that you might take to enter into his rest? Hebrews 4 says that we might take an effort this week to teach ourselves. My friend was telling me one time when he was on vacation that he got a call that his pipe had burst in his house. And so the whole time he has to submit his conscience and his heart and his cares under Jesus, knowing that Jesus is taking care of it, right? And he came home and there was nothing wrong with his house. And so what does it look like to live in the already not yet when your work's not done and this world isn't perfect yet and the immigrants aren't saved yet and, and there isn't justice for the nations and there isn't food in the storehouses? What does it mean to believe in his rest and not ours that he's finished even when we're not? What does it mean to make an effort to enter into his rest? He is a better priest and he did, does offer us a better rest. I'm going to have Tom come forward to open us uh, in a time of prayer. Um, and I'll call the band forward and, and pray for us as we transition into that. But, um, now Father, for all the, all the children, all of the babies that are in this room that you have cared for and nurtured and reached out to, we thank you, Lord, that you are calling us and you are calling us to come home to rest. And so um, this is your promise, Lord, and I believe that you're good to your promise, that you have come to bring us into a land that is flowing with milk and honey that has more than enough, a Genesis 2 land that can only come by your son. And so I just pray for any weary heart in this place and any weary space in our heart that as we hear your words to come to you, that you would come early and often to you and that we would follow you into every grain field and every garden and experience what the world cannot offer us, your rest. And so I thank you, Lord Jesus, for touching us and healing us like the shriveled hand. And I pray that you would restore us in your name. I'm gonna pray it again that you would restore us in Jesus' name, by your stripes and by your blood and by your power that you could do what this world can't do, which is restore us, to release the prisoners, to release the land, to release the curse, and to release your children. And so I thank you for the year of Jubilee that's come in Jesus and that you would release us from underneath captivity because you are the better priest. In Jesus' name, everybody said. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.